Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. China. When we talk about China these days, it's usually with a bent of optimism. The economic data coming out of the nation has been positive. It has re-upped uh, uh, Xi Jinping's tenure as the head of the country and seems to be showing increased unity. Here to sort of break all of the myths that we might be uh, depending on is Leland Miller, president of the China Beige Book International, which is based in New York. Uh, and he joins me here from the Ritholtz Wealth Management's uh, second annual evidence-based investing conference in New York. Leland, thank you so much for being with us. So what are we getting wrong about China's economy right now? Well, the thing that everyone has right right now is that China's economy is, is doing pretty well. And it's doing much better than a year ago. So a year and a half ago, we were in the middle of the China crisis. Everyone wondered whether this was it. Uh, the Chinese government intervened. They decided they needed a really good economy up, uh, for the party congress. And they got it. The problem is people don't understand what they did in order to get them to this point. There's a belief that the Chinese government has been deleveraging. It's been re- uh, the economy has been deleveraging. Uh, they've been rebalancing. Uh, they've been cutting uh, capacity on the supply side and commodities in order to to get the economy on a firmer footing. None of these have actually been happening. So the belief that these things are are, are that you've had this great economic performance despite deleveraging, despite rebalancing, despite all these strong policies, it, it's a myth. Well, I want to I want to push back on you. Just I mean, if I look at the headlines today out of China, China is said to weigh crackdown on high rate micro lenders. China's scrutiny of H and A leads to record refinancing costs. There has been an increase in benchmark yields, a lot in large part due to local crackdowns on some of this leverage. How does this not count for you? Well, deleveraging means different things to different people. Now, when we track corporates, what we're looking for is whether corporates are borrowing more or less, and whether they're paying more or less. And what we've seen over the past year is not deleveraging. So we have seen financial sector crackdowns. We've seen wealth management products been attacked. We've seen other things within the interbank markets been, been honed in on by regulators to try to keep control of, of what's happening between banks. But when it comes to whether corporates are borrowing more, we have seen an unmistakable trend over the past year. And to get this performance in 2017, they weren't borrowing less and they weren't, and they weren't paying more. There was significant borrowing. There was credit easing. And what we've seen is not just an absence of deleveraging, but going the other way, particularly in in the third quarter. So there's no deleveraging going on right now. And the third quarter was actually quite dramatic in how much the Chinese loosen the floodgates in order to get this performance going into the party congress. So not all borrowing is the same. And one thing that you highlighted uh, in your recent uh, op-ed that you published with for Bloomberg View was that there is also a myth that China is moving more toward service sectors and away from industrial sectors. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, I don't know how many times I have to be confronted with this, these pie charts that the Chinese government <laughs> puts out showing services going up and manufacturing going down, and thus we are rebalancing. But the reality is we track these things sectorally. And what we've seen over the course of 2017 and even the second half of 2016 is a reversal of rebalancing. So the way they got this performance was by juicing the old economy sectors. They said they were going to be shutting down. 
that they were going to be cutting jobs in. They didn't do that. So manufacturing going really well. Property has been exploding. Commodities has been exploding. Uh, services, retail, they've been doing fine, but it's been fits and starts. So this is not a new economy-led uh, a new economy sector led economy. This has not been something in which you are shifting to a new age for Chinese growth. They relied on their old growth measures uh, in order to get their 2017 growth, and it's going to hurt them down the road. So, Leland, as part of the Beige Book, you quizzed over 3,300 firms across China, both about their particular companies as well as the larger state of the economy. Do they have a more pessimistic view of the overall Chinese economy than, say, uh, people internationally that are looking at the good growth numbers nodding? Well, this is going to be the, the most interesting quarter we've had in a while. Q1 may be even more interesting than that, because for the past year, Chinese firms were bullion, and they were bullion because of something we call the party Congress put. They knew the government would never allow um, instability riding up to the party Congress. So even though they were dealing with a number of obstacles, they were very confident going forward that nothing bad would happen. Now the party Congress is gone. You're going to have at least a quarter in which Xi Jinping's team is getting into place. They're not going to allow instability there. And then it becomes very interesting because how is she going to meet these incredibly high expectations people have from he's going to combat pollution he's going to combat corruption he's going to keep jobs uh stable he's going to keep the growth rate stable he's going to deleverage he's going to de- <laughs> rebalance so he's supposed to be doing all these things at the same time as as, as he's solidifying the economy uh people are going to be in for a surprise here it's not possible so he's going to ride in on a unicorn and everybody's going to feel happy do you mm-hmm. think that uh just real quick do you think that the economy could be in for a spectacular downturn in the near future uh, I don't think spectacular downturn. I don't think near future. But we are very worried about 2018, not really from the Chinese domestic side, but from the from the U.S.-China trade tension side. So we think there is a very high le- uh, probability that the, the calm you've seen in the relationship for the past year uh, goes away in 2018, and you start seeing some very problematic uh, developments in the relationship. And that will have a dramatic effect on not just the economy, but the currency capital outflows. And we could be seeing some of the headaches that we've been seeing in past years. Leland Miller, fascinating to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Leland Miller, president of China Beige Book International, based in New York. Uh, really fascinating uh, insight into China. all the time. Not only have we gotten a lot of tech earnings, but tech executives have been on Capitol Hill talking with Congress, explaining what went wrong heading into the 2016 presidential election that led to so much, quote, fake news and advertisements that were not properly disclosed. Here to discuss is Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business, also the author of a new book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Uh, Scott, you know, you've talked about how Facebook is a young company that doesn't fully appreciate its role in media and perhaps the importance of being a media player in mm-hmm. the U.S. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, do you, what do you think they could have done? Well, the first thing would be to acknowledge they are a media firm. They still haven't, they still haven't acknowledged Why that. Why do you think they are? Well, the, defini- the pure definition, according to Merriam-Webster, is a medium that reaches and influences people as media. So that's the definition. And then on a business level, you spend a billion dollars on original content, pay sports leagues to produce original content, and then run advertising against that content, you boom, you're a media company. So I, 
you know, crises, the crisis itself doesn't hurt a firm. It's the response to the crisis. And when a company refuses to acknowledge that there are media firms for fear that they might trade at a lower multiple or that they might expect some sort of expectation of responsibility that we have on media firms as being part of the fourth estate, I think it just makes us angrier and angrier. So I would argue this is a kind of a fast-moving train wreck in a textbook case study and how not to handle a crisis. But the first thing is, you know, I am Facebook and I am a media company and they have refused to do that. It's absolutely ridiculous. But how would that change anything for them? Well, be, it, it, I don't think it changed anything for them. It would change things for us. And that is we could, we could legitimately expect them to show the same type of veracity or some attempt to show some sort of um, supervision around this content. Bloomberg is not going to be weaponized by Russia. I'm fairly certain of that. How do you really know? <laughs> but I'm willing, I'm willing to bet a lot of money that because I think you take your responsibility and your influence and your role in the fourth estate very seriously. Go on. Go on. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I just but, but talk a little bit about what you mentioned with Facebook and the idea that uh, they could be potentially worried that their multiples would go down. Yeah. Why does being a media company automatically sort of suggest that you're going to make less money, even though that's how we all view it? <laughs> Yeah. I, so my guess is you guys are going to forget more about that than I know. Just uh, crudely speaking, certain sectors trade at higher multiples. People like technology stocks. They like software companies. So you want to be a technology firm. You don't want to be a media company. It puts you in a different uh, multiple category. Full stop. So, so I guess that going forward, uh, my first question is, a lot of people are looking at Facebook more as a media company. Do you expect uh, that people's valuation of the company will go down as well, even though it is uh, reporting good earnings? I don't think so. My sense is that we're sort of beyond trying to figure out what it is. I think the, them identifying themselves as a media company is more around setting the expectations of what, of what they should be held responsible for or not. <clears throat> Excuse me. Having said that, what, where you might see a decline in the stock, if we're waiting for consumers to step in here, it's not going to happen. These companies are going to continue to, in my opinion, grow their earnings and have incredibly robust businesses because consumers will talk a big game about privacy and weaponization and the supply chain ethics of a dress out of something coming out of Bangladesh, and then they want to, they want that little black dress delivered to them within 45 minutes for 9.99. So consumers talk a big game about this stuff, but they don't vote with their pocketbooks, generally speaking. So you're seeing this guy. I think you're going to see these companies perform as well or better than they ever have. What you might see is the risk of regulation might result in a lower multiple placed on those profits. But I don't see the profits going down. You know, I want to push back because Facebook is actually trying to vet some of their content more. Yep. And they have been employing more people to do this. It's messy. It's imprecise. At what yep. point is this, you know, uh, going against the First Amendment and violating people's right to say what they want to say? Because this ultimately wasn't just about paid yep. advertising. It was yep. about what people were posting on their personal sites. Well, complicated and expensive. That sounds like a decent description of democracy. And they use the defense, and quite frankly, I think you've been co-opted into their narrative that, that they can't, shouldn't be an arbiter of truth. Well, they sure as hell can try. You try every day to be an arbiter of truth. You try every day to employ this fantastic and expensive thing called human discretion around your advertisers and your content. Why shouldn't they be held to the same standards as you? So do you have evidence that they absolutely do not have discretion over their advertisers. Yeah. The, the, an intelligence unit of the Russian government paid in rubles to sow ca- uh, chaos in our nation. I think that's pretty decent proof. But a lot of it wasn't that much money, right? I mean, it could have just been one employee that was not uh, author. I mean, how far up does this go? Well, okay. When, when the notion was first proposed, they said it was crazy. Then it ended up, oh, wait, 
a few million impressions, and now we've learned that it's 127 million people saw these ads. But how much would they have to pay for that? I don't know. I don't know what the business model is around that. You know, because there are a lot of people, there are a lot of eyeballs on Facebook just generally, yep. Yep. Um, and advertisements could be passed around. You just, I, I, what I'm trying to get to is, you know, yes, big decisions are, you know, at big, uh, like, conglomerates, like CBS, for example. Yep. It, it matters whether the spot's for the Super Bowl or whether it's for a rerun of Law & Order. Right. So uh, the, the data I'm focused on is that 127 million people saw these ads. So that's quite a bit. And in my opinion, I'm fairly certain that the New York Times and CBS and Bloomberg are going to be able to protect our, our elections from subterfuge. The New York Times will do it with 100 million of free cash flow. How come Facebook can't with 12 billion? There you go. Scott Galloway, thank you so much for joining us. Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business, also the author of a new book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, which goes biblical. This is Bloomberg. As we've been saying today, we are broadcasting live from the Ritholtz Wealth Management, a second annual evidence-based investing conference in New York City. And who do I have with me? None other than Barry Ritholtz himself. Uh, he is the founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management and a Bloomberg View columnist. And he also has a fantastic podcast, Masters in Finance. Uh, I highly recommend it. it. It airs on, I believe, 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. on Saturdays. Re- repeats all weekend, Masters in Business. You can find it wherever finer podcasts are sold. All right. So, Barry, evidence-based investing. Yes. I mean, isn't all investing based on evidence? You would imagine that, wouldn't you? When, when we were flailing around with the idea of doing this, every person we presented the idea to said the exact same thing. Isn't all investing based on evidence? And as it turns out, not so much. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? Well, There's lots of myths, there's lots of theories, there's lots of behaviors, and behavioral economics is a big part of evidence-based investing. So let's assume you want to put a portfolio together. How are you going to construct that portfolio? One of the first questions is, should you use an index? Should you use smart beta? Should you pick stocks yourself? And when you look at the data, one of the things you find is stock picking is really, really hard. Picking a manager who can pick stocks is even harder, and then picking a manager who could pick stocks consistently over time, net of costs and fees, is almost impossible. It's absolutely a needle in a haystack. So that sort of data that's out there forces you to say, what am I doing? Does what, I, does what I'm doing make sense from a probabilistic standpoint, or am I really throwing a Hail Mary here? with a very low chance of success, what does the evidence suggest? So if what you're saying is the case, then why shouldn't everybody just go to indexing? Well, we've seen a lot of people move in general towards indexing. It's not a coincidence that um, Tim Buckley, the incoming CEO of Vanguard, is going to be speaking here next. And uh, Vanguard has swollen up from a trillion dollars around the time of the financial crisis they're now over $4.4 trillion. So we look at indexing as a core part of people's portfolio. It doesn't have to be straight up 
market cap weighted indexing. There's arguments for things like factor models. We just heard Cliff Asnes of AQR describe ways to put together portfolios using quantitative data that shows we know things that like valuation, lower cost stocks tend to do better over time than more expensive stocks. We looked at, we discussed the five-factor Fama French model. If we want to really get into the weeds, we could look at things like- Wait, what does that mean? So <laughs> You just, I think, spoke French. So Eugene Fama just won the Nobel Prize last year. He's a professor at, at University of Chicago. His colleague, Ken French, is a professor at the Dartmouth um, College, and they've crunched numbers for decades looking at what, characteristics of companies do better over time. And just some of the factors that we know, we know higher quality stocks defined by low levels of debt. And there's a whole run of things that defines what's high quality versus low quality. Not surprisingly, they tend to do better over time than low quality stocks. The, The some of the surprising anomalies they've discovered has been things like small cap, small cap tends over time and not one or two or three years, but decades, that tends to do better than large cap. Some people, actually Cliff talked about, is the small cap premium, is it illiquidity premium? You know, big stocks trade very easily. Uh, Is it a a risk premium? Are you taking on more risk? We've also, another factor that actually Cliff Asnes created was momentum. Yeah. Uh, Is momentum a factor that helps people Invest and, and it turns out that all these things contribute to better performance. So how do these quantitative strategies deal with something like the tax bill that we're just hearing about? Uh, Moody's just put out a, in a note that said that the credit implications for investment-grade companies was positive, whereas for speculative-grade companies, uh, not so much because they couldn't deduct the interest as much going forward, and that would outweigh some of the benefits. How would quantitative uh, investing kind of address something like that? So qu- quality as an example. If you're looking at a quality screen for companies that have less debt, this isn't going to affect them. On the other hand, uh, lower quality companies uh, might be more negatively impacted by these changes in deductibility. So we still, by the way, we still don't know what the final tax bill looks like. This is what was introduced. What do you think is going to happen with it? I think there's going to be a lot of horse trading where, where whoever created the bill created a bunch of anchor points. 20% 20% corporate tax rate is where they're starting. That suggests to me, all right, if we have to go to 25, we'll go to 25. 12% repatriation rate, which I th- which seems actually quite high to me. Well, I had originally suggested, nobody listens to me about this sort of stuff, but <laughs> I suggested- If we to you, it would be all good. I suggested a graduated, the first billion is 5% and the next 2 billion is this. But listen, if you want to bring, that, that's the carrot. Isn't, is there a stick also on the tax bill? It's 12%, and if you don't bring it in, you're going to get whacked 30%. I, I haven't heard that. And that's the so, thing, if they don't, otherwise, I mean, they're already bringing it back through the corporate bond market. I'm not sure exactly right. what would incentivize them to do this. Uh, you know, if you want to move some cash from overseas and bring it home to do so, it seems weird that Apple, which has more cash on its books yeah. than, you know, uh, than India has GDP, <laughs> Why are they borrowing money to buy back stocks? It's, yeah. it's well, it's that's how they're bringing the cash back because they're paying less of an interest rate. Barry, unfortunately, I guess. we have to leave it there. But we'll have to continue this conversation. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management and Bloomberg View columnist, also he is running this conference today: the Ritholtz Wealth Management Second Annual Evidence Based Investing. This is Bloomberg. 
Thank you so much, Greg. So we are awaiting Republican leaders uh, to unveil their tax reform bill, which is expected any minute. And here to tell us a little bit about what we're expecting to be in that tax legislation is Laura Davison, Bloomberg tax reporter. So, uh, Laura, I do know that they released some talking points earlier today from those and other insights. What are we gleaning about what's in this bill? Well, we're gleaning that this sticks to much of what House Republicans had talked about. You know, those big tax cuts down to a corporate rate of 20 percent. That's expected to be permanent. Um, You know, pass-throughs, small businesses are getting a a 25 percent rate, though that does carve out uh, some what they're calling professional services firms. That could be investment managers or doctors, lawyers, accountants, that sort of thing. On the individual side... Uh, a new child tax credit of $300, the doubling of the standard deduction. Uh, a lot of, of those headline things that they were going for are in there. The question now and, and what, what we're really parsing through is what sort of deductions and credits uh, are taken away. Uh, I know on the international side, there's a lot of concern from some multinational corporations about how they're going to be taxing um, profits that you're bringing back on shore, profits you might be sending overseas. Uh, and this is always really tricky and gets really drawn into the details and uh, could, is, could cause problems for this bill moving forward. Well, one thing that we were just talking with Carl Rukadana about was the mortgage deduction. We found out that uh, that they will keep the deduction for loans that are under $500,000, but for over that, uh, those will be removed. Is that accurate? Yes, that's correct. That's there. So they're basically moving that. Uh, it used to be a million dollars down to 500000 so basically cutting that in half. And the reason is is because it raises a lot of money that they can use to put towards tax cuts. Mortgage interest is a very popular one. It's often called like the sacred cow of, uh, of the tax code, but uh, it looks like they did a little bit of a goring of that cow. Is there going to be a lot of pushback on that front? You know, home builders and, um, and realtors um, are already skeptical about this bill, so they may not have lost anyone that they didn't have already. Uh, members are really going to have to go through and look at this and say, okay, in my district, in my state, what, how would this affect uh, the, the home values and the people and what they're earning? And um, that'll really be the, the sign. And we'll, so we'll start seeing in the next couple of days as people run those numbers of can they get behind this or not. So, Laura, what about the local and state tax deductions? There was some talk about removing those. Uh, what, is the li- what does the final uh, bill look like? So um, I would say here's where they landed, but I'm not going to say that it's final. So they basically have a $10,000 cap for property taxes only. So you can't deduct your state or local income taxes or sales taxes, but you can take up to a $10,000 deduction for property taxes. So that's very good for New York, New Jersey, where property taxes are really high. The problem is, though, lawmakers, especially Republicans from that state, are saying, look, this isn't good enough, and they're reserving judgment on whether they're going to vote for this bill or not. Again, you know, running the numbers, see how it works out with, uh, with some of the other tax cuts there, but that's still a problem. Uh, that has sort of been plaguing Republicans for several weeks now. They haven't been able to come to agreement, and they still don't have everyone on board. So how simple is this? Is this truly a simplification where we can write our, uh, write, file our taxes on a postcard? Well, so it's sort of a mixed bag. For, for individuals, there are some simplification measures. You know, the big thing there is standard, uh, doubling the standard deduction. So fewer people will itemize. You'll have fewer forms. I don't know that it'll be a postcard, but it might be just be a couple pages. Uh, though really on the business side, that's where you see some complexity kick in of when you add special benefits or things that people like, you have to come up with rules to prevent companies from, from abusing those or coming up with, with a way to, to take extra advantage of those rules. 
All right. So, Laura, this bill was crafted with incredible secrecy. A lot of people in Congress did not see it before it was unveiled or it will be unveiled formally uh, within the next few minutes. Do you have any sense of just how much of a consensus GOP members have on this bill right now? Well, Republican leadership would definitely say that they've been having hearings and listening to members and and doing the consensus building. So there was definitely some frustration for members even on the Ways and Means Committee yesterday saying, look, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's in this bill. And it's, you know, 24 hours or less than that before we're we're set to to release it. Uh, And and that's that's what happened with health care, remember, right? It was crafted behind closed doors and people saw it and their constituents saw it and said, look, we can't vote for this. This doesn't take into the accounts of the needs of the American people. And especially when you're on a really compressed timeline like they are, they want to pass this out of the House and the Senate by Thanksgiving, which is you know, just a matter of days, really, at this point. Um, that's really hard to get everyone on board in such a short time frame. You know, Laura, just some interesting market action. Tesla shares extended their declines after uh, the U.S. tax bill was re- introduced today. The idea here is that it would repeal credits given to electric vehicle buyers. Can you tell us more about that and any other sort of tax deductions that would be repealed that would go toward uh, more sustainable industries? So there, I I don't know about the electric vehicle. That's one of those details that that lawmakers didn't know as they were coming out of the room, uh, but will be in that bill text either one way or the other. Uh, Nuclear, uh, there's an extension of the production tax credit for nuclear energy, so that's very good down in Georgia and South Carolina, Southern Corp, Siena. They've had some projects that have been sort of melee by, by sort of uncertainty there. Um, there's also some other extensions for, for, for some wind and some solar provisions, too, uh, that, that helps with uncertainty because there were, uh, has been uh, some friction among members of Congress. Republicans typically don't like these. Democrats want to see them extended. But, of course, Republicans are in power. Can you walk us through the process of what will happen to uh, turn this legislation into law? So starting next week, they'll have what they call a markup in the House, which is basically the Ways and Means Committee sitting down, adding amendments, uh, and basically going through this bill step by step. That's expected to be over, you know, next Friday. Uh, then they'll take it to the floor for a House vote, and they are, they're hoping to get that done the following week. Simultaneously in the Senate, they're looking to introduce a bill as soon as next week and do that same markup process and take the bill to the floor. Uh, the timeline they've laid out to get it done by Thanksgiving is highly uh, ambitious, you could say. Um, even getting it done by the end of the year would be a, would be a stretch, uh, but it's technically possible. And what? How many votes do they need? I mean, is it just a simple majority in each uh, in the House and the Senate, and that would pass, or is it something else? Correct. Yeah, simple majority House and Senate. Um, in the House that's much easier because they have a has, Republicans have a much larger margin. Um, over in the Senate, it's trickier. They only have 52 Republicans, uh, so you can lose two of them, and then Mike Pence can come in and be the tiebreaker. Uh, but that's very complicated. Has there been any uh, commentary from GOP members? Is there a sense that there is consensus on this at this point? And also, are there any Democrats who are willing to get on board? No Democrats yet saying they're they're on board, um, especially over on the Senate side. Uh, President Trump has been reaching out to, to members uh, who are in states where he won, so Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, uh, those sorts of members. Um, consensus, uh, House, they've definitely got a, a larger coalition, and they're really feeling the political pressure because they're all up for re-election next year uh, to get something done, anything done. And, and sometimes when there's pressure like that, the details don't matter as much. Over in the Senate, there's less pressure. They're on a six-year cycle. Um, and, and members just typically move a little bit slower, and, and are, it, the, the dynamics are very much different from the House. Uh, so while there could be consensus in the House, Senate is a different story.
Uh, I just want to let you know we are awaiting uh, Republican leaders who are planning to unveil their tax reform bill. House Speaker Paul Ryan just walked out in a shaking hands, and we will bring that to you uh, live. Laura, this is fascinating, and I have to wonder from your perspective, can you put these uh, tax, this pa- tax proposal into historical context? When was the last time that we saw this big of a change to the way that we pay taxes? So the bill that we were, we're seeing today, it's about 30 years since we've seen changes like this. So this was President Ronald Reagan, 1986, uh, where they really went through and then totally redid the tax code. It's possible that what we see today gets scaled back just because of, you know, tight deadlines or unable to build consensus. And perhaps we see something more like what we saw. Uh, in Laura, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, Paul Ryan did just start to speak. So uh, Laura Deason, we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.